On this podcast, we share a lot of stories and often the mental health aspect of the work we do creeps in. If you think you might be feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or even overwhelmed, please consider visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. And they even have therapists who specifically work with first responders. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. You can talk to your therapist in a private and online environment at your convenience. Many first responders work rotating and often odd schedules, so this format makes it really easy to talk to someone when it's convenient for you. If you don't click with your therapist, you can request a new one at no additional charge anytime. Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com backslash roadie. That's BetterHelp.com slash roadie, R-O-A-D-I-E. You can also find the link in the show notes. You gotta find a way to not really forget the memories, but know how to deal with them. On the trolley side, just a little bit of fire left. Like a path, they clear a path. I say, holy cow, they made a path for us. If you put a couple of first responders together in a room, something interesting happens. Before too long, they'll begin sharing stories. They're not trying to one up each other, they're simply finding common ground. I was fortunate enough to serve my community as a paramedic and a firefighter for over 25 years. As you can imagine, during that time, I acquired my fair share of stories about the incidents and the calls I was involved in. I thought I might write a book, but then I decided sharing these stories collectively in a podcast would give anyone listening an insider's view into the work that first responders do every single day. These are the stories of the men and women who courageously serve the public or as I like to call them, Stories from the Road. Welcome back to Stories from the Road. I'm your host, Phil Klein, and joining me on the podcast today is Patrolman First Class Murphy. Uh, Murph's got 20 years in law enforcement. He worked as a crime prevention specialist, an academy instructor, a crime prevention officer. He was a school resource officer and a PIO. Uh, He actually, if I remember correctly from the notes, you actually left law enforcement and then returned during COVID. So hats off to you for, for jumping back in at a time when I know there was a great need. So Without saying too much else, I will turn the mic over to you and let you share your story from the road. I did. Well, thanks, Phil. Thanks for the opportunity. And uh, I'm excited to to share something with uh, with everybody that uh, might be a little bit basic, but it just goes to the heart of, of what we do as law enforcement officers every day. And um, this this story was um, was just everyday patrolling, uh, you know, what I did, you know, hit the streets and we, we were solo beat in my, um, in my department, we rode one to a car and called it the solo beat. So you, you had, you're responsible for your area. You handled all the calls in your area and you, you know, you, you took ownership. And, uh, in my area, I had a, um, really, really, which isn't there anymore, but it's a really flea bag type motel, like, uh, you know, really nasty. Like what's the stand up rate type place. <laughs> you know, the unsavory people were there and, you know, it was almost guaranteed to find something to get into there. Saturday mornings, you know, usually I, I work day work when I was on, on the street. And, uh, when I did it, I would drive up there and just, just roll through, see what I could find, talk to people, talk to, you know, the, the salt of the earth people that were around. And, um, one morning I got there and I, I remember rolling in, it was, you know, dusk, 
just early in the morning, a little after six probably. And I pull through and I'm, I'm, I'm seeing all these cars. I've got a car from Nevada, a car from New York, a car from Florida, a car from California. I'm going, what in the world? This is not, not supposed to be here. Um, I'm in a large department just outside of Washington, DC in the Virginia, Northern Virginia area. And, uh, I, I do what any, you know, good patrolman would do. You start running tags, run all the tags and no hits. Nothing comes back. Nothing is super suspicious rental cars and whatnot. So it's dark enough. It's still quiet enough. I get out. I look around. I'm in and out of every car. You flashlight, nothing, you know, maps and whatever else you would find in a, in a person just traveling, you know, maybe even overnight at the, at the motel. There you go. Okay. Well, checked it out, cleared, drove down the road and, you know, maybe probably told the guy next to me what I found, but there was nothing specific to it. That was in April of 2001. And then, uh, obviously we know what happened in September of 2001. And one day in October of 2001, I get a phone call at the uh, police station. Hey, um, this FBI agent wants to talk to you. Okay. So give him a call back and he says, officer Murphy, you know, I, um, I, was running some, um, some background on some of the, the hijackers. And, you know, we, we put some pieces together and we, uh, we found some, some common things that were, uh, um, located and they were license plates. And, you know, it came through the system that you would actually run seven of them. And I said, really? He goes, do you, I know it was in April. Do you, do you happen to remember where it was? And I said, do you have a date? You know, when, when was this? He said, yeah, it was, you know, whatever date. And I looked back and I saw it was a Saturday and I, you know, kind of said, okay, you know, kind of my routine was to go to this place on Saturday mornings, part of my community patrolling, patrolling. And that's what I did. And I said, yeah, I absolutely told him where it was. And, and he says, well, he goes, you just confirmed that's where seven of them were meeting. I said, wow. Yeah, it was, that was at the time, obviously it was just not something that, that I was prepared for, but it just lent to the fact that it was just part of what we do in our everyday jobs. You know, you're out there patrolling, you know, quote unquote, looking for something to get something to get into. And, you know, didn't realize it at the time, but those little digital breadcrumbs wish it could have helped sooner. Yeah. There's really not much you can do at that point. I mean, they weren't breaking the law. You went through the cars, nothing was suspicious. Just one of those things after the fact that, Hey, that's where, that's where they were. Just one of them. That was, that was truly, yeah, you know, eye-opening experience. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, yeah, kind of a kind of a crazy Saturday morning, and and certainly a crazy connection after after such an event like nine eleven. Yeah, it was wild. So, tell me a little bit more about your career, Murph. Tell me, uh, you know, I know we, we I know uh, you wanted to talk about the integrity of the job and and keeping the job at the job. Go ahead and share some of that with us. Um, started my my police career. I, I accredit it to. Um, an ex-girlfriend's sister. She was, she was NYPD and, uh, she was, she was the one that, um, that planted the seed. And, uh, she, when I was in high school, she started telling me stories. And I mean, it was one of those, it just, it just clicked. That's what I'm supposed to do. Um, as soon as I, I had the opportunity, I, I moved up and down. I wanted to be NYPD and ended up writing up and down the East coast and ended up in, in my department in Northern Virginia. I knew nobody, didn't know the area, didn't know anybody there. And, um, just jumped in with two feet. Obviously that's what we do. The department is it very large. Um, I think it's the second largest aside from the, the state police. And, you know, it, it truly was a family, even though we, um, we were so big, 
that you know the the people at your at your st- your district station you know over a hundred at each you know we had there was a lot of camaraderie a lot of um a lot of a lot of stick-to-itiveness with the people. Everybody backed each other up. Everybody jumped on each other's calls. Everybody helped each other out. And luckily, it was, it's such a dense area that, you know, backup and things, we were close. We were close to each other. We could get there fast and take care of business. And being in that position, um, it really it really opened me up. I was probably more shy than anything when I was in, in high school. And then when um, once I got into the job and obviously you learn to just to talk to people. You've got, you've got to generate questions and, and, you know, be inquisitive about people that you've never met before. And it's, it's a skill that not everybody has. And it's, um, it's very awesome and a, and a great thing to, to have and learn. And and you've got to do it in a way that kind of disarms them. Right. So you're not, you know, just constantly banging at somebody you're, you're conversational. You're just talking about things, whether you're looking for something or not. Right. That's it. You're you're just trying to find out information about them, and you know what makes them what makes them t- tick. What why did they call you today? Obviously, there's going to be emotions and you know different kinds of things going on. But what was it that um, you know get to the heart of it, and it's going to be easier for you to get to solve whatever issue you can, if possible. You know, get to their um, get to the root of it all. As I, I went through my career, I. I went from the street on into crime prevention. And that was, um, you know, community liaison reaching out and dealing with a lot of the, the people in the, um, in the neighborhoods and civic associations and things of that nature really enjoyed that. Again, talking to people in a completely different fashion, not specifically about crimes that happened to them, but preventing crime and, um, things happening within the, within the area of our police district. Then, had the opportunity to go up to the police academy and teach for four years, which was extremely rewarding. Just getting to see so many different people. We we not only trained our department, but we trained um, a sheriff's department and some other smaller departments within our jurisdiction. So it was, um, you know, that even helped with continuity between departments and in training different people and and seeing so many people come through and getting to know them. Had the opportunity to go back to my previous district station again for another five years which was extremely enjoyable. Um, that was when I spent uh, the longest time in, in crime prevention and um, had the opportunity to, to go up to PIO. And when I did that, it was, um, I looked at it as an opportunity to reach more people within my jurisdiction and spread the word and, and really showcase my department. And for anyone that doesn't realize, PIO is a public information officer. So when something goes down, essentially, you're the person that's providing information to the news media, uh, maybe putting stuff out on social media and making really some connections as well, right? Correct. This was all, um, um, you know, pretty much height of of the starting of a lot of social media. So Twitter was really big and, and it still is X nowadays, but it was, you know, responsible getting stuff out on Twitter, making sure people know what's going on, whether it was from, you know, crime related or traffic related or incident related, getting the word out to people immediately. Um, it was fun and extremely stressful, <laughs> um, the PIO position. And, uh, at the time I was, um, during my PIO position, I was having my first, my first child. So, yeah, being up late, that, that helped and, and I was able to do it, but doing PIO and, and having children and it really, it really weighed on me. So, um, I actually chose to leave the position to go back to the street and I spent my last couple of years on the street on midnight shift. So I figured if, 
if I was home sleeping during the day, why not let a kid cry and keep me <laughs> up? But it's been, it was great. It was a great time. So you've had this great career, 20 years. You've worked in you know a number of different areas of, of policing. Tell me some of the moments that stand out to you. A lot of them are the times where I remember guys, guys, and when I say guys, I mean, you know, squad mates, yeah, male or female, when we got together and got something done, you know, the, he- the, the heads got together and it didn't matter if supervisor or not, everybody came together and put together a plan and stuck to it and came to a, you know, a good outcome or a, a reasonable outcome. And when, you know, when people come together with different aspects, different intuition, different training, different education, and, and everybody understands that they have a, um, they have a voice and it's not just, I got to listen to the brass. When, when things like that happen, good things, good things occur during incidents and situations. I remember one time there, we, there was a call once again, this, this isn't super involved, but turns into something huge. I remember getting a, um, there was a call sitting in pending, you know, they could just sit there and, you know, if you're, if you're busy, it just sits until you can go get it. If it doesn't have a high priority. And it was in, it was in a neighboring area of mine and and the officer and I were at lunch and we, we cleared our lunch and I went back to my area and he goes to his and he takes this call. It was sitting and he's not, he's not there a couple minutes. He gets on, on sideband on the radio and says, Hey, can you swing by? Um, this is, this is a little, little different for me. I said, okay. So we get there and it's, it's in a high rise condo building in, in a huge complex. There's three 15, 18 story buildings in one complex, all, all condominiums, lots of parking lots. And this guy calls and says, listen, my brother came by last night with my two nieces. I've still got my nieces, but he hasn't come back. So, okay. That's interesting. So he, he says, I love my nieces, but I've got three kids of my own. I can't take care of these kids. What do I do? So we get there and he explains that earlier in the, the, the night before his, um, his brother called and said, Hey, you know, I'm downstairs with the kids. It was raining. He, can you come down and grab them? He pulled under an awning. The uncle comes down, grabs the two girls, takes them upstairs and, brother never comes back. And I'm like, well, you know, do you have his phone number? Can we call him? You know? And he said, he goes, well, I've tried. He goes, I I can't get him." He goes, but the thing is my brother is not supposed to have these kids. So interesting, interesting. So call the supervisor and, and, and a bunch of other, the area units. And, um, we start looking for this car. We're looking for, we knew what kind of car the, the, the brother, the brother driven we're spent. I mean, probably a good solid hour checking the parking lot for any of these vehicles. And it's not there. And while I'm out doing this with some other officers, the other officers upstairs and he's talking to the brother, the, the man that has the two girls and he's talking to these two little girls. And the one little girl goes, daddy shot mommy. Mommy's boo-boos were hot. We're like, Oh my gosh. Okay. Um, so then this, I, I, this girl was probably three three years old, sweet little girl. So, so he, he says, so we, we start trying to make more phone calls. The, the complainant who called said, here's the other thing. He goes, I can't get in touch with my sister. I have no idea where she's at. She didn't go to work that I know of. I can't get in touch with her. Where do they live? They lived up somewhere up in Pennsylvania. 
So we call the local department up in Pennsylvania and they go, we, we give a description of the, the people and one of the detectives pulls it up and says, oh yeah, you know, we're familiar with the house. Okay. So he says, all right, let me, you know, I, we've been there for some, some domestic violence calls and things of that nature. Let me do some digging. So I said, okay. So he calls the house, sends a patrol unit by. House is in a little bit of a disarray, but no one's there. No, we find out where the, the wife worked. She never showed up for work, hadn't shown up for work that day. So we come to find out that they had, they had, had, they had started their own investigation now up in Pennsylvania because whatever had happened, happened up there. We didn't realize it until we are speaking deeper. And we've got the detective in Pennsylvania on speakerphone with this little girl, three years old. And essentially, she told us that the dad had rolled mom up in a, in a rug and dumped her off of a boat in Pennsylvania, grabbed the girls, drove them down here. And then he, uh, he actually left. We didn't know it. We didn't know where he was and ended up going to, I believe it was Egypt and fled the country. And, um, I don't remember the, the, the amount of time, but it was probably within a month that they ended up finding him and extraditing him back. And they got him up in Pennsylvania, not, not in my jurisdiction. Wow. And all that from, from a call, basically he dropped off two kids and I don't know what to do with these kids. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. But that's also a great example of your team working together and, you know, getting all the pieces put together and figuring this caper out. So, you know, kudos to you guys. That's fantastic. And being willing to talk to a child, you know, too. And right. Right. You know, and, and where did you live? Where do you live? And and having to figure out that this all happened up in Pennsylvania. It was, yeah, it took took a while. It was incredible. Tell me what you liked about being a school resource officer. What was that? What was that like for you? Because it had to be different than some of the patrol work that you did, correct? So yeah, that was the um that was the reason I came back. I came out of retirement into back into my local department out here where I live. So um, after I retired and I was um, I was out doing a so I'm the um, I'm the chairman of my local police foundation out here. And we were doing national night out in just during COVID and we're out making the rounds through the neighborhoods. And, and I happened to, we happened to make a stop and the, the local sheriff and I started talking and he realized that I was retired from my retired from my department. And he goes, man, I need a, I need a part-time SRO, please. Will you come back? And I'm like, nah, I'm retired. I've been a couple of years since I'm retired. He goes, please. I really, he goes, he goes, where do you, where do you live? And I told him, you know, five minutes away and we're in a school parking lot and the one school's behind it. And he goes, he goes, do you have kids? And I said, yeah. And he goes, where do they go to school? I said, well, they don't right now, but they would go right there. He goes, you can have that school. <laughs> I said, okay. Twist my arm a little more. What'd your kids think about that though? So they were too young. They, oh. they, they, they were too young. So they still thought it was cool. They still, yeah. So they still thought it was cool. Cause I, I didn't have a take home in my prior department. And one of them was, yeah, you can have a take home in this, in this department. So so I got recertified during COVID and, and came back in and, and joined my local sheriff's department and became a deputy. So it was really hard being called Deputy Murphy after being called Officer Murphy for 20 years. So it was it was it was interesting. They they um out here where I live, it was they actually wanted me for an elementary school. So I worked in an elementary school. Different. Um had elementary age kids kind of, so in kindergarten. So it was, you know, being able to talk to kids was 
it was fun and, and rewarding and you know being in a school is a, it's a different um it's a completely different dynamic than being on the street but obviously you still need to be there you still have to have the the antennas up and um everything on high alert always yeah especially nowadays so i are you still doing that or did you uh, fully retire now? I'm not. I fully retired. <laughs> Had enough of it, huh? Yeah. Once they went back full time, I said, I, I can't give you full time hours. I got you. Well, listen, we're, we're coming to the end here. So I'm going to hit you up for one more story. Give me one more story from the job. Man, one more story. Good one. Let's see. Mm. Right, this one's funny. Kind of funny. I'll take I'll take funny because I, I it's funny because I ask for stories and I always get like this is the worst day of my life and I never I never want anybody like I'm not pressuring anybody to tell me the worst story of their life I just just give me a good story you know it's a, something funny and uh, I get these terrible stories so give me something funny I'll take it all day long so you wouldn't you probably wouldn't recognize it or realize it from looking at me but I speak fluent Spanish that was my that was my secret weapon and I worked in an area that was extremely, um, extremely Hispanic. So one day, and, and a lot of people knew some didn't, I remember one day we're probably Saturday afternoon, everybody's having fun, getting drunk, drinking in parking lots. And I, I pull into a parking lot and you know, these guys who were drinking knew they shouldn't have been drinking outside. So they just scatter. It was hilarious. So I just picked one. I'm like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to, quote unquote chase. It wasn't, wasn't much of a chase because the guy was stumbling, but he, he goes into a, he goes into a building and he, he shuffles up the stairs and he starts banging on this door. And I get there right as the door opens and this, he's standing there. And this woman is looking at me through the little crack and looking at him, looking at me. And in Spanish, the guy is saying, tell him I live here. Tell him I live here. (laughs) And I look at her and she looks at me and she shakes her head. No. And I knew because I spoke Spanish that he didn't live there. So I said to him in Spanish, you know, I know you don't live here. You're coming with me. And his jaw dropped. He literally just turned around, put his hands behind his back because he knew he was going to jail just for being drunk. We have drunk in public here as a charge. But man, it was it was hilarious. Shut him down. He thought he literally thought she was going to let him in just to hide out from me. Well, maybe the maybe the Murphy name tag on your shirt threw him off. He thought he had a chance. <laughs> Well, Murph, man, it's been great talking to you. I was glad to have you on the podcast. Anything you want to throw out there before we wrap this thing up? So, yeah, real quick, if I could, I um, I left after 20 years, which is considered early retirement. And, you know, when I left, I, I made the choice, too, because I had young kids. I was starting a family, yes, at, an, at a later age. But I made the conscious decision that I wanted to put my family first. And that is it, it's so important in our profession that you do that because you need to give your best at home and, you know, leave, do your best to leave work at work because your family at home needs you. And when people said, Oh, you're crazy. You're, you're, you're leaving all that money on the table. You're leaving all that. You're leaving all. I I said, you know what? I never had it. I said, I never had, I'm taking a sure thing right now so I can go home and, and be with my family. And and that's what I did. And that's when I left. And and understanding that you have that option. Nothing is keeping you to doing this. You know, if if and when you have enough, you, you gotta know. You know, with all the with all the mental health issues today, between, you know, our consumers out on the road and our our work family, those issues have to be addressed and and we have to address them ourselves. 
Those are those are very true words, and I'm glad that you were able to do your 20 years and maybe maybe 20 plus one with uh, with the kids at the school. But I'm glad you're able to do your your time and uh, serve the serve the community well. And I really appreciate you coming on this podcast, sharing a couple of stories with us. Maybe come back, uh, you know, dig out a few more stories, and we'll just we'll just sit here one afternoon and and throw some stories around. But Murph, you're always welcome back on the podcast. Thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. If I could, could I have like one more minute of your time? And oh, Yo, absolutely. This is I'm, I'm I'm a little nervous about this, but um, I wrote a poem that I've never released, and I, I it, this just came to me right now. I, I please, just, this literally just came to me now. It's um, it's about police suicide, and um, I ran it. I ran it by um, an organization you're familiar with. So with first help. And it just, it came to me once and I, I wrote it and I was going back and forth about, should I, should I have other officers read this or should I read it? And um, I want to ask you if it's, if it'd be okay if I, if I read it. Yeah. The, the mic is yours and I would, I would be honored to share it. It is called policing each other. We come from a family that bleeds through our tears, pay the ultimate sacrifice, fighting people's worst fears. Selfless and brave, running into the fight, never knowing if they'll make it home for the night. We're people with families and emotions too, now portrayed with targets because we wear blue. We take home the stress of all that we see. Human side of the badge can't be seen on TV. Real life has its pressures that varies in weight. We're brother or sister, no matter what's on our nameplate. So let's be there for each other, no matter the time. Ask about family and kids, not just all about crime. The signs of depression aren't always apparent. Internalizing emotion is normally inherent. Digging deep with concern brings you closer to truth. You can't be a detective, but you gotta have sleuth. Suicide is an option, but never where it ends. Tough situations get easy when you get help from friends. These mental health issues have no immunity. Firsthelp.org offers up a community. Suicide intervention is no more an enigma. Let's police one another so we can break the stigma. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you enjoy. Stories from the Road is a Brown Dogs Media Group production. This one-man show is written, edited, and produced by Phil Klein. Show notes are written by Jennifer Rowick. If you have a story you would like to share, please contact us at storiesfromtheroadpodcast at gmail.com. To learn more about this show, please visit storiesfromtheroadpodcast.com. Thank you for listening.